and welcome to Bizarre Conspiracies. My name is Conrad Toll, and with me today is... Eric Patino. And today we are talking about the Clinton body count. Now, if you've never heard of the Clinton body count, uh, that's okay. I mean, that was actually a long time ago that this was a big deal back when Clinton was president from 1992 to the 2000. The idea behind this whole theory is a lot of people seem to die in mysterious circumstances around the Clinton family. And the idea is that somehow they are all linked to the Clintons offing people for various reasons. Some of these mysterious deaths include plane crashes, unusual suicides, and some of them are just unsolved murders. So the idea is, well, behind these typically start with a theory of some kind where there is multiple different reasons why Bill Clinton might want somebody dead. For instance, Ron Brown is one of the most famous members of the conspiracy because he died in a plane crash that killed not only him, but 34 others. Now, Ron Brown was the Secretary of Commerce, a very visible figure, and the plane crash was quite unusual because it happened in Croatia and the plane just flew off of course and crashed into a mountain during landing. In the investigation, it was found that the plane did not have the appropriate gear to be landing in bad weather, that mm -hmm. the first off, it had only one receiver, signal receiver, for coming in blind to the airport, and it needed two because the airport sent out one signal saying this is the direction of the airport and they had a second one which was say uh, you've gone too far and if you only have one receiver then you can only listen for one of these signals and if you're only listening to one of these signals you'll never hear the warning saying that hey you're about to crash into a mountain turn around now another thing that was wrong with it is it had an incorrect map on it where the map that was given to planes for landing at the specific airport said the lowest approach that you can come, the descent in altitude towards this airport is 21,000 feet. And if you reach 21,000 feet and you have not yet seen the airport, then you abort the landing. This was incorrect. The Air Force later decided that the correct number should have been 27,000 feet. Another issue with this is the plane had no black spot recorder because it was an Air Force plane. And at the time, Air Force passenger planes did not require black box tapes. So it does sound as though that this plane was set up to land in a airport where it was not equipped to land. And in the investigation, there was plenty of people who were found to have decided to deliberately forego the checks to make sure that everything was safe. And for instance, the issue with the altitude and the approach was the review for the maps was overruled by a superior officer, and he actually was discharged from the military for doing that. So how does this connect with the Clintons? The idea is that the Clintons had set up this plane to actually crash. And the reason why it veered off course is because a temporary beacon or decoy beacon had been set up on the side of the mountain to lure the plane off course. Although no beacon was ever found, that doesn't keep people from assuming that, you know, it could be possible that somebody had a transportable beacon. Now, why would Bill Clinton want Ron Brown dead? Back before this crash, 
Ron Brown was in the middle of a controversy where it was alleged that he, coming up to the 1996 presidential election, was taking money from Vietnam as a bribe and funneling it into the Clinton election campaign. So that way, when Bill Clinton got reelected, he would then fulfill his side of the bribe and reduce embargoes that were placed on Vietnam. Hmm. Now, there was an investigation by the FBI into this, and they determined that no such bribe had ever happened. However, the FBI was under control of the Clinton administration at the time, since it was Bill Clinton who was running for re-election. So, obviously, that does nothing to satisfy the doubts of those who believe that he was bribed. So, if Brown had... When if Brown had posed a threat to the Clintons by perhaps other types of funds coming up as potentially linking him to illegal activity, mm. then it would make sense that Bill Clinton would want to off Ron Brown. Tie up some loose now, ends. This one I always thought was a weak theory, but when I was studying this, I discovered something that's pretty crazy that made me think, well, maybe it's not such a outlandish theory. Ron Brown had a son, Mitchell Brown. No, Michael Brown. Now, Michael Brown was actually under investigation at the time for funneling funds illegally into the re-election of a senator from Massachusetts. His name was Edward Moore Kennedy, also known as Ted. Does that name sound familiar to you, Eric? Oh, yes. Ted Kennedy is the younger brother of John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy. Mitchell Brown actually pleaded guilty for taking money from one group and funneling it through multiple illegal names, not illegal names, but multiple fictitious names or names where the money actually did not come from to get it to Edward Kennedy. And in the plea deal, it was reduced down to a misdemeanor and he got away, was essentially a slap on the wrist. And he never did anything illegal ever again, uh, except he didn't. Mitchell Brown actually became a, believe it was a, a mayor. And then just a few years later, like about maybe 10 or 20 years later, somewhere around 2012, I think it was, he was arrested and will for the felony of trying to accept a bribe from, of all people, a FBI agent. And he's now, I don't know if he's still in jail, but he is definitely went to jail for, again, trying to take money illegally. So it does seem as though he and his father had a, a little bit of a uh, funneling dark money operation going on for the political, especially the DNC. It looked as though they got money from one group of people to the next group of people to circumnavigate uh, electoral contribution laws. Mm. Uh, it just seems as though Ron Brown was either better at it than Michael Brown or Ron Brown had the good graces of the FBI to cover up for him. <laughs> so then let me bring this back to Ron Brown. His crash did have a few unusual things about it. First off, after he crashed, the search and rescue operations were directed to search an area far away from the actual crash area. 
And when they were did come to the crash area, there was signs that somebody had been there beforehand, and that there was a strange hole in the top of Ron Brown's corpse that some people said looked like a bullet wound. In one of the Washington Post's interviews, they found someone who, when giving their you know description of what was going on, they said, yeah, we met up with three Americans who had been helicoptered in previously, and we went up there the following morning. Well, to keep in mind, that was only a few hours, like eight hours after the actual crash had happened. So by the time that the search and rescue operators got there, this one guy was saying that three Americans had been helicoptered in before he was. So the theory is that after the plane crashed, some people came in and then made sure that Ron Brown was dead and left. Interesting. So that isn't the only person on the uh, Clinton body count that uh, that died in a plane crash. In fact, there was another member of the Kennedy family who was involved in a plane crash. It was John F. Kennedy Jr. who was running against Hillary Clinton for the senator seat of New York. That was in 2000 or 99? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 99, 2000, yeah. And then there was another fella who he died in a plane crash in Alaska. In any case, the idea is it seemed as though the more prominent groups that seem to die, die in the plane crashes. So I guess that makes it less suspicious if they died in a plane crash as opposed to they were shot in a drive-by shooting. Which, speaking of drive-by shootings, brings us to Jerry Parks. Now, Jerry Parks was the head of security for the Clintons. And he had collected a dossier of a bunch of women who all claimed to have had uh, relationships with Bill Clinton, of the kind of relationships which he denies, of course. And he was done at the order of Vince Foster to do this. After collecting all of these things, he then gave a copy to Vince Foster, who was going to use this because he was going to be the lawyer for Hillary Clinton in her divorce. But then Hillary Clinton apparently changed her mind not to divorce Bill. The idea was that this group of affairs in the dossier would give Hillary Clinton a better standing in a divorce trial. After the divorce was canceled by Hillary Clinton, Jerry Parks just held on to his copies. And then in uh, 1993, as he was leaving a Mexican restaurant, another man just kind of drove up, shot him 10 times and drove off. Never solved. Nobody knows who that guy was, why he shot him or anything. Just Jerry Parks got shot and died. Jerry This was in Little Rock, Arkansas, by the way. Yeah. So his son believes that the files were then stolen from his father's house around the same time the phone lines had been cut and the security had been shut off and that the files were gone. So the idea is that that the Clintons knew that there was that potential to sabotage them. So it was just kind of problem was ruled out. I don't know if Jerry Parks was trying to do some sort of blackmail at the time, but the theory is that that is what actually caused him to die. Now, Vince Foster also died, the lawyer who asked Jerry Parks to assemble the dossier. So he is also one of the more famous ones on the list because his suicide seems quite suspicious. Particularly, his suicide letter seemed 
to vindicate the Clintons and all of his other collaborators at the time of all of the issues that Vince Foster was tied up with. And uh, he just seemed, he said that he took the blame for everything that had been going wrong and then just shot himself. There was a whole lot of evidence that's missing from the crime scene. For instance, all the photos that the police officers took that day were all lost, except one picture of the gun, which was held in his hand, sort of. It was found dangling from his finger, or and that's what you can see in the picture is just the gun and Vince Foster's hand and the gun hanging from his hand. Which is, I don't know if this is true or not, but the source that I was reading said that that's highly unusual for suicide bodies to be found. Normally the gun actually flies out of the hand. Anyway. Right. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. He was shot the, in the also mouth, the right? gun went, Yeah. The gun also went missing. There was no blood found at the scene. Wait, wait, wait. Um, we it, have photos of the gun, but the gun then went missing. Yeah. Coincidence? Anyway, there, there was a bunch of other things where it's just like evidence kind of disappeared. And so that that's just why that one just seems so weird. But so Vince Foster and Jerry Parks were kind of tied together. And it is kind of odd. Both of them just died since they were both tied up in preparing for the Clinton's divorce. Anyway, and the last one that I wanted to touch on was the Whitewater scandal. Have you heard of that one, Eric? Yes, I have. Alrighty. Well, the Whitewater scandal was... Are we uh, talking about Jim McDonald here? McDougal? Yeah, yeah. Did he die in a plane crash? Or No, no, no. He died in jail. Well, he died of a heart attack at a federal correctional facility in Fort Worth, Texas. Yeah. So he was tied up with the Clintons financially where he was doing real shady, estate investment. Uh, yeah. I'm not exactly sure of the whole dealings, but supposedly uh, Bill Clinton was pressuring people to give money to McDougal. Is it McDougal or McDougal? I think it's McDougal. That's how it's. Yeah, that's spelled out. Anyway. Yeah, I, that's what it looks like. But McDougal sounds better. McDougal would then take these loans and then um, invest them into property, and then people lost money on it. And after you know things had gone particularly bad, he ended up in jail for shady business dealings. But the Clintons were ruled as not liable for some reason, and then he then died in prison. Anyway. So that, that's generally the gist of it is it's just there's people who are tied up with the Clintons, whether in money or in Bill Clinton's multiple affairs, and they die or people who come out and accuse him of sexual harassment and they die. And that's generally the whole gist of it. Now, there's some of them that I found that it's just like, yeah, there was the mailman who delivered mail and he shook hands with Bill Clinton when they started. But then later he didn't like Bill Clinton and then he died. They're like, well, I don't know if that one's necessarily connected. But there are some of them that do seem more suspicious than others, like somebody dying in a plane crash under mysterious circumstances after having possibly been the mastermind of the Clinton dark money handling just dies in a mysterious plane crash. Anyway, Eric, did you find any that you thought were uh, particularly interesting to you? I wouldn't say that they're interesting, but one that I found, okay, maybe one that's pretty interesting now this one is the don henry and kevin ives story did you hear about this one i have not okay so on august 23rd 
1987. Two teenagers from Arkansas, Don Henry and Kevin Ives, were killed, and their bodies were left on the train tracks. Now, initially, the boys' deaths were declared accidental. However, there was a second autopsy done, and the first examiner's decision was overruled, and the new cause of death for Don Henry and Kevin Ives changed to homicide. Now, the mother of Kevin... Her name is Linda, had suggested that the boys were killed after discovering a drug drop from an aircraft close to Mena. I don't know where Mena is, but if there's like a airport in Arkansas called Mena or something close to that effect, then that's where it happened. So according to her, Bill Clinton concealed the facts surrounding the boys' murder while serving as governor of Arkansas in order to profit from drug smuggling at the Mena airport. Now, I found that one pretty interesting. So that one ties in, I guess, a bunch of other theories about the Clintons having a whole underground crime ring. Uh, I've heard you know, that they are, were involved with Epstein and human trafficking, and I've heard that they were involved in the drug trade as well. So that's probably the first one where it makes them sound like they're drug lords, essentially, that they are the leader of some sort of a cartel. They're like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, I don't even know if Bill Clinton even knew Jeffrey Epstein when he was the governor. That's a good question. I I don't know myself either. But I do know that he was good friends with Jeffrey Epstein at one time. I think he even got to fly the plane for Jeffrey Epstein. You know, that wonderful plane that... Sure, sure. The infamous plane. Yeah. If you go and look at the records, Bill Clinton is put down as the pilot. So, uh, (laughs) on a few of the flights. Another one that struck me when I read was Mary Mahoney. Now, Mary Mahoney was a former White House intern who, in the early summer of 1997, was fatally shot during an attempted robbery outside a Starbucks in the Georgetown area of Washington, D.C., where Mahoney was working behind the counter. When Mahoney tried to steal his gun, the thief entered the business and shot her. After shooting two Starbucks employees, he ran. And conspiracy theories say that she was assassinated per the Clinton's orders. I found that one pretty far-fetched. Yeah, I, I heard that one too. And I was like, um, yeah, probably not. Because it doesn't sound like he went in there and just was trying to kill her. It sounded like he was actually trying to rob the place and she was fighting him and then he shot her. Normally, that's that, that doesn't look like an assassination. That just looks like a robbery gone wrong. Mm. Now, there's a whole host of victims in this uh, whole Bill Clinton yeah. body bag count or so, body count. Another one that goes them, along the lines of what you were saying about people who were involved with him financially, so to speak. There was one by the name of C. Victor Razor II. Now, this guy was co-chairman of National Finance with uh, Bill Clinton. And it says here, on July 30th, 1992, a single-engine high-wing aircraft that he and his son had hired for a fishing excursion crashed in Alaska, killing him and the other four people on board. And they say that uh, conspiracy theories contend that the crash was intentionally caused, although the National Transportation Safety Board declared it to be an accident. Uh, I don't got too much information on this one, but... So, how was he involved with Clinton's? He was Bill Clinton's co-chairman of the National Finance 
Whatever that means. Yeah, I'm guessing that he's the guy who helps make sure that the budget is spent correctly or allocates money as resources are uh, depleted. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, the government always runs out of money faster than they thought they would. Of course. So one of the things that uh, I do l- like to do when doing any sort of a murder investigation is, you know, always try and find the motive of, well, Bill Clinton wanted this guy dead because he was threatening to release his dealings on the Vietnam bribe or whatever. I think Um, when it comes down to it, most of these people just knew too much for their own good. It's essentially what they're trying to convey here with this list. Yeah, I think that that is one of the problems with the list. I think that probably some of these things on the list are pretty good or at least make or hold a lot of water, but some of them are just a bit far-fetched. And the idea is they try and present the whole list as a comprehensive list. Sure. But a lot of them are a whole lot less certain than others. Some of them are way out there. And others go, well, this one's got actually like a full theory behind it. So I think that that actually detracts from the overall strength of the conspiracy theory if you put them all together. Although I do think it is odd how many people die around the Clintons. I think it's It's better to look at each one individually as opposed to looking at them all together. Because if you look at them all together, you lose all the nuance of all the, the shady things that seem to be happening. For instance, the McDougal guy clearly was committing a crime to do with finances and went to jail and then he died in prison. Well, whether or not he he was murdered or not, that in and of itself that he was a business partner of the Clintons and he was committing crimes, that reflects poorly on the Clintons one way or the other. And if you just lump them all together in the Clinton body count, you miss the nuance of there is this thing that isn't a conspiracy theory. McDougal, McDougal, he was committing actual crimes. Like, that Mm. is not a theory. He did go to jail for it. Then there is the fella who he was accused of the Vietnam crime bribe, and he was found innocent. But his Mm. son did the exact same thing that he did, and he got caught twice. Which leads to the question, how many times did the son accept bribes and transfer funds and shuffle underwater money through shells to get money to campaigns where they were needed? How many times did he do that and not get caught? And who, where did he learn that from? So that is one, my biggest critique, biggest critique of the Clinton body count conspiracy is that each one of these should be handled separately, or at least they should be put into tiers. We have the high tier, then we have the low tier, and then we have the way out there tier. But I think it just gets too easily dismissed as a way. Who put this list together? Um, Do you know how this list? I do. I do. But I was just. I I was thinking it was just something that kind of organically came together because there were so many conspiracies and controversies surrounding the Clintons that we've all forgotten about because that was one, two, three, four presidents ago. Yeah. It's not fresh in our memories anymore. I remember the Clintons, but this list was created by Linda Thompson, who was an American lawyer, and, well, she died in 2009. Now, the original list was called the Clinton Body Count Coincidence or the Kiss of Death, and she admitted that she had no direct evidence of any of these claims. 
However, she says the deaths were probably caused by people trying to control the president and refuse to say who they were. So that's where this list originated. Well, I got a pretty good one here. Did you hear about Victor Thorne? No. What was the name of the guy who died in the plane crash who was the Ministry of Finance fella? Was that not Victor Thorne? Uh, no, that was definitely not Victor Thorne. That was Victor Razor the second. Okay. Too many victors here. <laughs> Victor Thorne is the author of three books and an anti-government conspiracy theorist. Victor Thorne apparently killed himself with a shotgun in 2016. Thorne had accused the Clintons of being involved in drug trafficking and murder. And political analyst or whatever, Roger Stone, was among many who supported the conspiracy idea, claiming that Thorne was killed in retaliation for his criticism of the Clintons. Now, that, I guess, brings up a question. If you were trying to silence, I guess, people who were... I, I don't think that it really makes sense to try and assassinate someone because they wrote books about you that you don't like as a retribution that to me yeah that was definitely lumped down there that one to me it, it seems as though if you were to kill somebody who without destroying like their works or that sort of thing before they released their information and the information was already out there it's kind of pointless to do retribution against them because all you're going to do is add credibility to what they said or is that what they want you to think? Uh, that would be, that's too much. Because most people aren't going to look that deep into it. That's true. Well, look, there's a couple of more people on here, and I'm not going to go through all of them, because it's like Connor said, there's a lot. And, and I'm sure that whatever list you find, there's more that just haven't made it onto the list. Right. I'll just quickly mention the names. Uh, Sean Lucas was one. Jeffrey Epstein was apparently on that list. That'd be one of the more recent additions. Christopher Sign, who was an attorney general for former President Bill Clinton. Kobe Bryant. Now, we've talked about Kobe Bryant on the show before. I have not heard the Clinton connection with him. On January 26, 2020, basketball player Kobe Bryant of the Los Angeles Lakers and eight other people perished in a helicopter crash. QAnon yeah. that Bryant was deliberately killed in the accident to keep him from disclosing financial wrongdoings by the Clintons. Now, how would he be involved with the Clintons financially? Bryant allegedly threatened to expose information that will lead to the arrest of Hillary Clinton in a Facebook post. Okay, now this I could definitely believe that QAnon came up with. Yeah, I mean, there's not really a strong claim to the Clintons on this one. Yeah, unless he was doing, like, real estate deals with him because he had a lot of money and then he was like, hey, let me back y'all uh, with some financial money that I've made playing basketball. He did play basketball, right? Yes. Now, if you had invested heavily into some sort of joint account with Clintons and then he was getting super upset because he wasn't getting money back or something like that, then I could see how somebody could tie him to the Clintons. But as far as I know, I have not heard of a single financial connection between him and the Clintons. I'm not saying there Nor isn't have one. I. Just haven't heard of it. Uh, the last one I have on my list is... Jean Luc Burnell. So it says on February 19th, 2022. So this was very recently. Jean Luc Burnell, who was suspected of being part of the Epstein's global sex trafficking organization, 
committed suicide in jail prior to his trial. And the reason he was connected to the Clintons was because Senator Ted Cruz asked the question, does anybody know where Hillary was this weekend? Bravo, Ted Cruz. (laughs) Yeah, okay, so most of this list seems pretty outlandish claims. Some of it is, um, some of it might be spot on. I don't know. I don't necessarily believe the list, though. If I'm being brutally honest, yeah, it is. It is really I, strange, like you said earlier, Conrad, that they seem to be surrounded by a lot of people who just mysteriously die for whatever reason. I, I can't think of another president that's just surrounded in so much controversy. Yeah, uh, they, they've all got their different controversies. Uh, some of them are McDonald's and Kim Jong Un related, and others are milk mm. toast and gaff related. But some of them are odd suicide and airplane crashes related. Anyway, they've all got their controversies. And Has this even... podcast changed your opinion of Bill Clinton at all? Are you asking me or the audience or both? Uh, I was asking you. No, my opinions of the Clintons have remained the same. And, you know, we didn't even get into all the sex scandals. Yeah. Oh, no, no. Uh, I mean, we sort of touched on it, that there was the one guy who was collecting the dossier of all the women for a... Right, Mr. Jerry. Slam dunk, a slam dunk court case for Hillary in her divorce proceedings, but that's about it. But I am pretty sure that such a dossier or folder, whatever it is that he had compiled, would have been one of the most interesting documents ever released to the internet It had he... Uh, released it well i guess that would have been pre-internet so if he had leaked it he would have had to gone i don't know where do they people go to release information prior internet i'm too young uh, tell me well, old man what is where does one go without the internet the library <laughs> i don't know you wouldn't have gone to the library and printed it yeah i don't, I don't know It wasn't really pre-internet. Our internet was just really slow back then. Well, if we're talking about the time he was uh, governor, then yeah, that that would be pre-internet. No, this would have been uh, 1997. No, we had internet in 1997 for sure. It was called (laughs) dial-up, Conrad. What if he had gone to that thing that they, what was was before Facebook? Jabber? Jabber, is it? Oh, I have no idea. There was some about? social media where you the, would go in and you had like a page and you could type whatever you wanted on it. There was MySpace. There you go. He could have gone to MySpace, put I it on think, there. That would have been... I don't think MySpace was around in 1997, though. Well, he could have started uh, an email chain. And Google wasn't around until 1998. These were truly yeah. prehistoric times, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> what did What did our parents do? Where did they go? I wonder how many of our audience members, I don't know what the demographics show, but if I remember correctly, we have a small portion of our audience who wouldn't have been old enough to remember Bill Clinton being president. Correct. So I guess for the majority of y'all, y'all all remember Bill Clinton. Yeah. Interesting presidents did not start recently. They've all been weird. Well, that I think about covers it. I think Mm -hmm. next we are going to be doing a podcast on George Bush, just to balance things out. Exactly what about George Bush, I'm not sure, but I'm sure that there's plenty. There's a lot we could talk about George Bush. Yeah, so... I would say he was... Stay tuned for that. One of our most fun presidents we've had. Fun? Like he uh, liked to drive fast cars? 
just entertaining. There was always something going on with George Bush. Oh, are you talking about his things where he would say something like, our important sectors of energy, commerce, transportation, and the other one. Well, what was the other one that was saying? He said nuclear, right? Nu- nuclear? He didn't say nuclear. He said a lot of weird things. Yeah. He was well known for saying evildoers and such things. Well, I suppose that will conclude today's episode. But I tell you what, I want to shout out to all our listeners who have been listening since the beginning. And there's quite a few of you, and that's pretty amazing. How long have we been doing this, Conrad? Uh, I think it was 2017 when we did our first episode. Right, towards the end of 2017. And it's now no 2024. Way. We've been doing this for six years? Doesn't seem Sounds right. about right. Uh, next thing you know, we're going to have to have our uh, hearing aids properly adjusted to... Well, we're not quite that old yet. So yeah, thank you all for listening. We have talked about so many bizarre things. I think my favorite topic has always been when I talked about the guy who was doing OBEs and meeting an astral projection mistress and writing diaries about it on his computer and then his wife finding out. That was just hilarious to me. Yeah, that one was actually one of the first ones. <laughs> and uh, you know that it had to have been good if Eric still remembers it. I still remember it, and my memory's pretty bad. That was the first time I'd ever heard about the um, uh, acoustic records. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that's a, that's a whole world of bizarreness there. And then I think, didn't Napoleon go there once? Like, he visited the uh, the pyramids, and then when he came out of the pyramids, he'd gone to the Akashic Records, and he was all shaken and was never the same after that. I have no idea. Yeah, we should definitely uh, revisit the Akashic Records. There are so many good stories about it. You were telling me that you had information not just on the two president, George H. Bush and George W. Bush. You also had an even more senior Bush. Mm -hmm. I do. And before I start, I have a sore throat. So if I sound weird, that's probably why. Anyways, I have some interesting facts about Prescott Bush and George H. Bush. And we don't normally hear too much about Prescott Bush. If anything, it's mainly George W. Bush. And well, for a good reason, because he's been the most recent Bush in our history. Do you know a whole lot about Prescott Bush? I think he was like a oil tycoon, I think is what they called him. I know that oil been in the Bush family for a while. I don't remember which one started into the Bush family, but I know that like they were really wealthy. That's about all I really know. I don't exactly know how they got their money. Well, then I suppose today will be a shock for you, Conrad. So Prescott Sheldon Bush, born 1895, was an American banker and Republican Party politician. Is that what he's known for, just being a banker and a politician? But here's the thing. In 1921, he married Dorothy Walker. Prescott Bush was introduced to the banking industry by Dorothy's father, which helped him land a good career. And he went on to become a managing director and shareholder of this company, UVC, which stands for Union Banking Corporate. 
It may surprise you to learn that this bank was primarily established for the benefits of the Nazi party in Germany. It was founded as a U.S. financial institution to handle German assets belonging to wealthy Nazi party members, and it provided funding for many other efforts to transform the party into what it eventually became. When did it start? When did they dip their toe into the water? There was a guy named Fritz Tyson, and he was a wealthy Nazi who had a large amount of money in the UVC. And another company called BBH, which actually stands for Brown's Brothers Harriman Company, that Prescott Bush also worked for. Now, Fritz benefited greatly from his ownership of the largest steel and coal firm in Germany, which was utilized as a camp for slave labor during the Holocaust. However, the United States took all of UVC's funds on October 20th, 1942. So that should give you somewhat of a timeline there, Conrad. Yeah. And yeah. it was the, the group that took UVC's funds was the Alien Party Custodians. They took control of the UVC's assets as well as, fun fact, Nikola Tesla's. At the time, um, Prescott Bush served as the alien property custodian president. So he helped set up the financial institution for the Nazi party, the UVC, but then he took it with his organization as the president of the alien property custodian. Now, he terminated his own business with his other organization, and in doing so, this helped him make even more money. This, and you wanted to know how, you didn't know how they came to be a wealthy family. This is how they became a wealthy family. Interesting. Now, did any of that come to you as a shock? So they had to, I guess in 1942, when the U.S. entered World War II, the U.S. then forced the Bushes to stop funding the Nazis and the confiscated their assets. But it was the Bushes that came in to confiscate the Bushes' assets. Uh, sort of. Look, it was Prescott Bush who set up the initial UVC financial institution, right? Yeah. To handle German assets. So it was members of the Nazi party who had all of their money handled by this institution. Oh. And then Prescott Bush, with his other organization, the Alien Property Custodian, seized those assets for himself, essentially. So he kind of stole from the Nazis? He helped the Nazis dubiously and then just took it. Okay, I'm seeing how this works. Okay. So in the Holocaust, one thing that always kind of made me, that I was always wondering about is why, if the point of the Holocaust was a genocide, why is it that they set up labor camps? And the reason was it was just more efficient, more economically viable because there was so much of a cost in doing a genocide that they figured that they should at least get free slave labor out of it to help pay for the costs of the, the whole debacle. So this money that the Nazis are making off of a genocide, they're then having it managed by a firm in the U.S. Then the war breaks out and the, the firm that has been helping the Nazis exploit in a genocide, their assets are then seized and are brought, well, not brought, but the, the funds are then made to make the Bushes wealthy. That's, that's the idea, yes. Okay, I kind of follow now. That is very messed up. That is, uh, yes. I wonder if he was friends with Henry Ford. It sounds like he probably was friends with Henry Ford. 
I don't know if you know this about Henry Ford. He was a big supporter of the Nazis and he wanted there to be Nazis in the the U.S. He purchased a newspaper and I forget exactly what it was, but he purchased a news outlet and had them publish nothing but pro-Nazi news because he felt as though objective media was not, was portraying Nazis as bad guys. I didn't know that. Wow. (laughs) So uh, I kind of feel as though he would have gotten along just fine with the Bushes. Maybe. Well, I'm going to move on to George H. Bush. And as everybody is aware, he headed the CIA through an intriguing period of the CIA history. That was the start of Project MKUltra. This is a conspiracy theory, obviously, and there isn't any exact proof of it, but all the research of MKUltra experiments that had happened date back to the exact time that he was head of the CIA. But also, there is a chance that George H. Bush had some part, some kind of involvement with JFK. Though we will never know for sure because the majority of the JFK files, as we know because we've covered this extensively, Conrad, have been redacted and never been made public. Even though there was that time that Trump sweared up and down he was going to release the JFK files and didn't, and then it backlashed, and then he released a few files, but they were all heavily redacted. Yeah. There was that, and at the time, there were also theories and speculations suggesting that George H. Bush might have been, also might have had some kind of involvement in the 1981 attempt, attempted assassination to Ronald Reagan. Now, here's the thing. Do you know who the man was who attempted to assassinate Ronald Reagan? Hinkle? Hinkley. Hinkley. You're, you're on there. So the fact that John Hinkley was the man who was believed to have been the shooter, and that the Bush family and the Hinkley family were actually really good friends. Here's the thing. Two days following the attempted assassination, John Hinckley Jr., the shooter's son, and Bush's son, Neil Bush, were, I guess, caught out together having dinner. And this was reported on mainstream news media. They actually have recording, video recordings of them two having dinner together just two days after the assassination. That is odd. That, yeah. Not only that, nine months prior to the assassination attempt, Neil Bush had a fundraiser. Guess who was at that fundraiser? It was John Hinckley and John Hinckley Jr. Mm. So a lot of people believe that this is when they got together. Very interesting. Yeah, no, I had never heard that one. That one's a big news to me because I used to be really obsessed with the uh, attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan. And I, for instance, the gun that was used was a 22 caliber revolver and it had special ammunition, which had exploding bullets, not hollow points that expand, exploding bullets made out of, if I can remember correctly, it was like a zodium mercury, something similar to a mercury fulminite. And when he was, the one that hit Reagan actually did not explode. So after they took it out of Reagan surgically, they were mm. able to detonate it later because wow. of the explosive that was still in it. The one that hit, I think it was John Brady, the secretary who was hit during the attempted assassination, was 
was shot in the forehead. And the only reason that he survived is because the bullet actually exploded in midair. And it was just the remnants of the bullet that hit him in the forehead. If it had been the full bullet, it would have killed him. But that ammunition was designed by Nazis. It was a relic from World War II. That ammunition was very old. And it was 22 rimfire, which I'm surprised it even fired because rimfire ammo is not known to be particularly reliable. And if you have ammo that was probably, what, 30, 40 years old at the time, ancient Nazi bullets, unless he had a manufacturer somewhere still making Nazi bullets. Anyway, I was big into uh, the Reagan assassination. I know a bunch of weird random trivia like that. And I had never heard that uh, he was friends with the Bushes. Yep, very good friends. I did hear that while Reagan was in office, that was when Bush Sr. was still part of the uh, CIA. He was still the the head of the CIA. And that is what uh, he was in charge of the program which Reagan was using to smuggle arms, the Contra arms smuggling thing to South America or Central America. I don't remember the exact details. Yeah, there was a a bunch of shady stuff that Bush Sr. was doing. He had what they were called these groups they would funnel arms training and money to. And they were these violent gangs that they had nominal control over and, you know, so they could get them to do certain tasks for them. They were CIA assets of some type and very unpopular. These uh, death squads, as they were called. As the name implies, they killed a lot of people and uh, they were essentially gang members. They were just violent gangs that the CIA used to leverage some control in those areas. Also, there was uh, several coups that happened during that time, which is hard to pin necessarily on the CIA. But when a coup happens, it's hard not, uh, even if a coup was to happen organically and the CIA had nothing to do with it, I'd still be suspicious of the CIA. But yeah, that would be a good topic for another day is just all the CIA coups. Because there's a lot that have been alleged and there's even been several that the uh, CIA has admitted to, like the Iranian coup in the the 60s. Yeah, that one's pretty infamous. So there was this guy named Saddam Hussein who was the leader of Iraq. And he invaded a neighboring state called Kuwait. Now, Iraq and Kuwait are both heavy oil exporters. And Saddam Hussein was desperate for money. So he decided he was going to invade Kuwait and take over their oil fields because he thought that that would help him make money because he was having issues selling oil. But I guess his plan wasn't well thought out because I don't see how he was going to make more money off of Kuwait's oil than the oil that he already had. It wasn't like he had a shortage of oil. He was having a problem selling it and also producing it because the groups that he had running his oil fields weren't doing too well. They were pretty lousy at their job. Anyway, the point is there was in a coalition that went in and to push Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. They did so. It's called Operation Desert Storm, led by the U.S. And it was one of the most successful military invasions, actions, I don't know what you'd call it, that took place in history. If you just look at like the numbers, it was very one-sided. So fast forward, that was under Bush Sr. So we fast forward to Bush Jr. Bush Jr. comes to power. Then the 9-11 attacks happen. The whole 9-11 conspiracy is... 
just gonna skip over those ones. We've covered main, 9-11 before. Two, yeah, yeah. The two main ones that I wanted to cover about Bush Jr. is his invasion again of Iraq. So George Bush Sr. invaded Iraq and then George Bush Jr. invaded Iraq. It's mostly that second one that I wanted to focus on and then also the Patriot Act. And both of these were done in the name of preventing terror attacks like 9-11. So after 9-11, Bush Jr. invaded uh, Afghanistan, where Osama bin Laden was hiding with the Taliban and whatnot. So they went in and attacked Afghanistan. But after invading Afghanistan, Bush Jr. decided to invade Iraq. Now, there's a lot of evidence that shows unequivocally that the decision to invade Iraq was done before the reasons to invade Iraq were discovered. So Bush Jr. decided he wanted to invade Iraq, and then he asked the intelligence agencies to find reasons that he could present to the UN that would then allow him to invade Iraq. And this is this was a conspiracy for the longest time where people who mentioned this was like, yeah, you're a conspiracy theory. But now it's pretty much known 20 years later. There's been several investigations that have come out and shown the flawed method of gathering intelligence that led to the invasion of Iraq. And the flawed intelligence was as a result of them looking for a reason to invade as opposed to just trying to find whatever they saw. Instead, they were seeing things that weren't there because they were directed to find specific reasons to invade. Now, why would Bush Jr. want to invade Iraq? I personally don't know, but there are three main conspiracy reasons on why. The first one, the one that everybody talks about, I'm sure that some of you have already said it once out loud or twice, probably yelling at me. Oil. That's oil. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's the most common one. The next one is he wanted to oust Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq. So it was a geopolitical move where he wanted to topple Saddam Hussein and set up a proxy government, so to speak, that he would use then to leverage against Iran. So it was, I guess, geopolitical shuffling. The third reason, which he was asked to by the Saudi Arabia, because Saudi Arabia does not get along with Iraq, definitely get along with Iran today and didn't get along with Iraq at the time. Iraq is not really a big enemy of Saudi Arabia currently because of the invasion of the U.S. invasion. This comes primarily from the reason that who benefits the most from the U.S. invading Iraq. And that's actually that the Saudis have benefited greatly. First off, they've competitor in both oil has been eliminated as well as a political rival in the Middle East. There are four, there were four main states which were considered the heart of the Middle East. There's Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. Those were the four big players. With Iraq out of the picture, Saudi Arabia has more power, not, not in the hard sense of power, but more in what they call soft power. They have more influence with their neighbors like Jordan and Egypt and Syria. People look to them as the leader of Middle East coalitions. They're seen as the head of OPEC and that sort of thing. So it gives them more prestige in diplomatic dealings and gives them more bargaining power. 
so to speak. So because Saudi Arabia has benefited so much from the U.S. invasion of Iraq, if you reverse engineer this to what was the outcome, and if you imply that the outcome of the invasion was the intended goal, then it would seem as though Saudi Arabia would be a prime candidate for um, wanting or asking the Bush to invade. I haven't actually seen any other evidence. It's mostly just speculation upon, well, Saudi Arabia benefited so much, so obviously uh, they're in the oil business and so is Bush. They did arms deals. They were buddy-buddy, so obviously Saudi Arabia had some dealings in it. I haven't seen any actual evidence, but it's a speculation. As for the oil aspect of it, this one's kind of an odd thing to say, but the U.S. government doesn't really care all that much about Iraq's oil specifically. As long as prices on oil stay the same, they really don't care so much about where the oil comes from. It's mostly the fluctuations. So if the U.S. was to invade a country for oil, it wouldn't be over the fact that they wanted to take the resources. It's because of the instability that would be brought to the U.S. economically speaking. The U.S. doesn't care that they have to buy oil. The problem is the thing that the U.S. would fear the most would be a repeat of the 1970s oil embargo where oil prices went through the roof and there was a massive detriment to the economy as a result of that. But as long as the U.S. can find some way to appease OPEC and keep OPEC from shutting down the oil flow, the U.S. itself doesn't need to be the ones producing it from the government's perspective. That's more like an economic, what a macroeconomist would come to the conclusion of, or that's what I've heard economists who are obviously more versed in this than I am. I tend to agree with them on that, and uh, I know there's probably a lot of people who disagree with this, and that's okay. I actually encourage people to have different opinions than me. So I'm leaning more towards that Bush wanted to topple Saddam Hussein because of a power thing. He wanted Saddam Hussein out of the picture because he wanted to make Iraq. He had this crazy vision of once we were to invade Iraq, the Iraqi citizens would then welcome U.S. as liberators or something. And I guess he had this idea that if we invaded Iraq, it would be like Japan and Germany after World War II. And they'd be like, well, now we're just going to go be booming economies in post-war World War II, which if that's the case, I guess he didn't look too much at the reconstruction of both Japan and Germany because both of them kind of hated the U.S. for at least 20 years after World War II. Anyway, that's a, that's a whole other thing. But if going through all of the reports that I've seen on the Iraq war, there was this sense of delusion that I get from leaders who had this unrealistic idea expectation of what the, the Iraqis citizens would think of the U.S. When, after the U.S. would invade and they thought that somehow that the Iraqis would be so happy that they weren't under the rule of Saddam Hussein. Because Saddam Hussein, no doubt about it, was a terrible autocratic dictator. 
Sure. So they had the idea, well, if we overthrow him and topple him, the people will love us because they hate Saddam Hussein. I guess it never occurred to them that, you know, they can hate two people. They can hate the U.S. invaders and they can also hate Saddam Hussein. These things are not mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. So and I intend to kind of go with this route if it wasn't obviously clear by now what my opinions were. But (laughs) my reasons for this is the planning that was done for the invasion of Iraq was done very good until the occupation started. They're like, okay, we're going to start. We're going to fight. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to capture this. We're going to bomb this. We're going to do that. The invasion went smoothly. Then the occupation started and it was terrible. So the plan shows that they had a ridiculous idea of how it was going to go. And I think Bush had this insane idea of he would have a victorious war and be seen as a war hero and go down in the history books as one of America's greatest presidents alongside Roosevelt and George Washington and Abraham Lincoln as the guy who won that war against the Iraqis and made the Iraqis a wonderful, prosperous democracy and was so blinded by his hubris that the result of, I guess, a catastrophe, which was the Iraq war, unfolded. That's my general opinion. However, if you have information which I have missed about why Bush invaded Iraq, by all means, send me an email. I want to read it and I will definitely do a follow up if I feel so compelled. So if you were alive back then, which I I have to put that disclaimer in there because it's been 20 (laughs) years almost. Yeah, about 20 years to the date that that invasion started. So there's been a whole generation that has been born and raised since then. But around the time, there was this whole investigation about weapons of mass destruction. And there was this other thing about Al-Qaeda link. Do you remember any of that, Eric? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I remember weapons of mass destruction, Al-Qaeda. Yeah. Bush wanted to do his invasion. He decided what his reason for invasion was. Mm. And then he had to sell it to the American people and to the U.N. And that's where weapons of mass destruction and Al-Qaeda came in. That was, there's a whole paper trail, essentially. Multiple paper trails of people being pressured into fine evidence. So one of the most common things were, for instance, there was this story, allegedly, that Saddam Hussein was buying uranium powder from, I think it was Chad, Africa. And uh, there was this agent who was selling this evidence, supposedly a copy of the receipt. And he first went to the French government and the French government said, this is fake. This is not true. And they disregarded it. This guy then went to the U.S. and then the U.S. was looking for some link of Saddam Hussein to weapons of mass destruction. And even though the French had looked at it and said, oh, this has got all the telltale signs of it being a forgery, the CIA didn't really do any analysis of it. They just like, yeah, this is we were looking for this. We were looking for like something, anything. Give me that. I want more of it. And so they they just snatched it up without really giving two looks at it. There was a lot of things like that. 
where anything and everything was true, as long as it pointed to weapons of mass destruction by Saddam Hussein. Because they were just trying to justify something. It didn't necessarily need to be true. They were just trying to, uh, their bosses pressuring them to come up with evidence, and so they were coming up with all the evidence they could find. So the, the links to Al-Qaeda, that Al-Qaeda had been receiving funding from Hussein, and then they went and they were doing terrorist attacks like 9-11 with the funding from Saddam Hussein. Those were all f- false as well. There's been no substantive link found between Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda. In fact, at times they actually fought each other because they have different opinions on Islam and that sort of thing. Because Saddam Hussein was actually atheist, I think. So he didn't get along very well with the uh, militant Islamic groups. But I would say that there is a few things that Saddam Hussein could have done better. First off, he was kind of like Kim Jong-un with the fact that he liked the attention that the international community was giving him. And they're like, you have weapons of mass destructions. And he was like, well, maybe I do. I think he even threatened a few neighboring states with chemical warfare and that sort of thing, saying that he had weapons that he turned out actually not to have. So he wasn't helping his case at all. He wasn't necessarily cooperating with all the investigations that the UN Security Council was sending. There was a few that he cooperated with, but it wasn't full cooperation and that sort of thing. So yeah, he probably could have done better, but at the same time, I think that they would have invaded anyway. But yeah, no weapons of mass destruction. Well, I guess actually there were a few weapon, poison gas weapons that were found, but those were actually leftovers from the Iran-Iraq war of the 70s. So they weren't new production like Bush was claiming. Anyway, that's that conspiracy. But also tied into it is the Patriot Act. The Patriot Act, did you know the Patriot Act was signed into legislation six weeks after the actual attacks. It took them six weeks to write it, pass it in both houses of Congress, send it to the president, and him sign it into office. Six weeks. I mean, I can believe it, but is that is that too short of a time for something like that to happen? It's not necessarily. I mean, it's unheard of fast for how legislation moves in Congress. If you want to play like the political party thing and point you know, left versus right, both sides are guilty on the Patriot Act. It went through the houses with bipartisan support. And so did the invasion of Iraq. But that's a, another thing. But so the Patriot Act... For those who know the exact specifics of it, it allowed the government to have surveillance in a few different areas, specifically communication and financial accounts. So the things that it did is it required banking institutions to look for certain types of activities and they mandatorily had to report them. And then it also allowed the government to ask for certain financial transactions that had happened. So they could go, hey, bank, give me all the financial purchases that so-and-so has made. And then the bank would be required to turn over those financial statements. So the other section, it allowed them to do email and phone tapping without a warrant. Then there was also another section called Section 215, which is probably the most infamous part of the Patriot Act, which allowed for bulk survey collections. So they could look at, they would go to AT&T and they would say, hey, give us all the phone metadata on all the phone calls for all of these people. 
And it was millions of people, not hundreds, not thousands, millions of phone calls that they took the data for. And they were looking at who made the phone calls, who they were talking to, and how long they talked to it for. Same thing for emails. And they could also more specifically choose the actual amount of data which they took is actually secret. We don't know the full extent of how much they were able to take under their interpretation of the law. So they may have been actually tapping the whole phone calls and recording them all and they could be on a hard drive some. That wouldn't be surprise me in the slightest. They could have full emails, millions upon millions of emails saved somewhere. Wouldn't surprise me at all. There was in 2008, there was a, a hearing. They were doing investigations of the Patriot Act had a sunset provision in it, which meant after a certain amount of time, the law would then go away unless it was renewed. And in 2008, it was when the sunset law was put in place. And in 2008, they renewed it to 2020. And in 2020, it expired. But even though it's expired, there's still other sections of it that still exist. So there's still actually the infrastructure for it in place. The actual Patriot Act itself has gone away, though there's still, uh, I forget exactly what it's called, but it's the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And so it allows them to do roughly the same thing in the U.S. as the Patriot Act did. The main difference that between it and the Patriot Act is, although it still allows things like phone tapping and communications monitoring, it does not allow for what they used to call the uh, sneak peek warrants, which under the Patriot Act, what that would mean is they would get a warrant, go raid a house or something without having to show the warrant first. So they could show up when somebody was at home, do a full warrant search of the house, and then after they were done with the warrant, then notify the person whose house they searched that their house had been searched and then they would show the warrant. The reason why that's such a controversial thing is let's say somebody gets a warrant, a police officer gets a warrant, right? They go to execute the warrant and there's an issue with it and like the, the warrants for them to search the bar and they go there they want to search the house and the person looks at the warrant and say, no, you don't have a warrant to search the house. You only have a warrant to search the bar. If it was a sneak peek search, they would search the house. Then they would give them the warrant and say, hey, you don't have a right to be searching the house, only the bar. So that's probably the biggest issue with the sneak peek searches. But those, I believe, have gone away with the sunset of the Patriot Act. However, a lot of the stuff is still there underneath the uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And that's not the, the first one because there's multiple Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. It's the one from 2008. Anyway, so with all of this invasion into your privacy, which under some, sometimes it goes as far as, you know, those ring doorbells, Eric, the Patriot Act has even done the seizure of those doorbells, the, the data from uh, the uh, footage from those doorbells has even been seized under the Patriot Act. And things like your phone, how it does little pings and sends out your location and that sort of thing, they've seized that as well. And medical records and that sort of thing. Immense amount of monitor from the government. Uh, you would think with all of that, that the Patriot Act would have at least something to show for a record. Like some terrorist somewhere got caught because of the Patriot Act. No, there has not been a single case that the CIA, the NSA, or the FBI can bring forward and say, Patriot Act help us, helped us catch this terrorist. However, they have caught a lot of drug dealers with it which is not what it was designed for at all. 
So mostly the Patriot Act has been used as a boost to surveillance for the war on drugs. The whole thing about it being for counterterrorism never panned out. Hasn't caught a single terrorist. Not one. Wonderful. So I'd say a misguided, a, a, not necessarily the, um, the worst thing in the world because Saddam Hussein was a bad person, but the execution was done so poorly and thoughtlessly. And also the justification for it was pretty bad. I mean, lying to the UN and to Congress to try and get more support for it and making up the whole thing about weapons of mass destruction, that's pretty bad. I think that in, in a lot of ways, lying about it is worse than the, the actual mistake in, in a sense. Obviously, the consequences are far worse. But uh, I, I'd liken it to, hey, Eric, do you remember a fella who will go unnamed, but he used to work at that bakery, which we both worked at at one time, and he lit the kitchen on fire? <laughs> yeah, I remember. So what he did is uh, he was supposed to be learning how to clean out the deep fat fryer. And he did, showed up late for his, he was supposed to work with another guy who was more senior than him. And he was supposed to teach him how to clean out the deep fat fryer. And he didn't show up. He kind of missed training. So because of that, our boss decided as a punishment, he was going to have to clean it out himself without the training, which probably was not the best idea in hindsight. So he was cleaning out the deep fat fryer without training and he decided to take a shortcut and melt the the waxy grease that he was supposed to fill it up with straight over the hot coils and that caused the uh, coils to ignite and caused a huge fire and long story short it caused more than quadruple his annual salary in uh, damages <laughs> so what would be the um, like uh, partially I would put the manager slightly at fault for uh, well, maybe not because if it was this unnamed guy, this unnamed guy who lit the, the place on fire, he knew that he wasn't supposed to be melting the grease in that particular fashion. And he was trying to do it fast. So I guess there is really no excuse for him at all. I can't remember uh, who the manager was at the time. Was it the main boss or was it uh, Humpty Dumpty? I think it was Humpty Dumpty. Well, there we go. I equally blame her. Yeah, he uh, he received a nickname after that. Do you remember what it was? No, because I was hired to replace him. Oh, I see. Well, uh, his nickname <laughs> after that was Fire Chief. Anyway, so if you were to ask... Like, what was his three greatest, if you were to rate his three mistakes? First off, the way that he put the fire out, which caused extra damage. The fact that he was melting it improperly, which caused the fire. Or three, he didn't show up for training like he was supposed to. Of those three, I think the most egregious mistake, in my opinion, was the fact he didn't show up for training. The reason for that is he had perfect knowledge in that situation that he shouldn't have been doing missing training. When it came to igniting the fire, he didn't mean to start the fire, but he probably knew better than to be doing that. He was just didn't think that it would cause the biggest problem that it did cause. And when he put the fire out improperly, that I don't blame him for really at all. Though I did get a very good lesson when I was joining about how to put fires out properly and what not to do. Anyway, and I do that because of his knowledge. He started the fire improperly because he didn't have the right knowledge. So that one's like about 50-50. I get, think if he had stopped and thought about it, he might have been able to see the problem with it. But he hadn't been trained not to do that. 
So that one's kind of not his. That's half on him. Putting it out the wrong way, I could see anyone making that mistake. That one's, I don't blame him for it. Uh, from what uh, the manager told me, the uh, mess that the extinguisher system made actually did more damage than anything else. So even I though see. that one was the most catastrophous, I could see anyone making that mistake. Because it, it would seem like in that situation, that was the right thing to do. Anyway, so even though that one had the worst results, I could see anyone making that mistake. So if I was to do apply that same set of knowledge to Bush, when it came to what I think were his biggest failings, was it the Patriot Act? Was it the invasion of Iraq? Or was it the... Um, Bad planning and half lying because at some point the intelligence agency was lying to itself and forgot that it was lying to itself. And so at some point they thought they were telling the truth, even though they were lying because they had, you know, there are so many people in this chain of false information that the fact that it was a lie got lost somewhere in there. So they were feeding themselves bad information. So like you're he saying was, the intelligence agency in this scenario is Humpty Dumpty? No. Well, no. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I'm. I would that that'd be correct. So I'd say that like that one's 50-50. Bush had half the knowledge that what he was doing was wrong. And that one had, you know, far-reaching consequences. When it comes to wanting to topple Saddam Hussein, I could see anyone making that mistake. When it comes to the Patriot Act, that one is fully fully unexcusable. The idea that we're going to void the Fourth Amendment and just spy on people and to further the war on drugs, even though it clearly had failed by the 2000s, like that is totally unexcusable. So even though it has the smallest of consequences, because there was so much knowledge that I hold the him to a higher standard on that one. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That's how I, I stand on it. The actual decision to invade Iraq. In hindsight, bad move. But I can see him making that mistake. When it comes to putting the intelligence agency in such a point where it was incentivized to lie to you and that way you could get your reason to invade, I think that that one's like 50-50. You should know that if you're going to go to war with somebody and you're like, hey, I want to go to war with Saddam Hussein, you should just come right out and mention your reasons at face value. And if people say no, that's a bad reason. That's what they're there for. You don't lie to your advisors and the UN so you can go to war because you know that if you told them the truth, they would tell you no. Because it's like, hey, let's put up this gate that's supposed to keep me from making bad decisions. But then I'm going to break the gate so I can continue to make the bad decisions because I know better. Like, what's the point of even having oversight if you're just going to override the oversight? That one's 50-50. Maybe not 50-50. Maybe 30-70. But Patriot Act, unexcusable, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I suppose I will conclude today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to Bizarre Conspiracies. Conrad, any final conclusions? Don't vote for Bushes. All politicians are dirty. Yeah, um, true. I'm not necessarily, I'm definitely not a Democrat, but I'm not necessarily a Republican either, but I think that most Republicans can agree, don't vote for a Bush. Jeb Bush, while he was voting for uh, president against Donald Trump, had what, 2% uh, in the polls? So mm. I, I think that that's not a controversial statement to make. Don't mm. vote for Bushes. And don't vote for the Patriot Act. Yeah, don't vote for the Patriot Act. Alrighty. Well, if you want to email me or Conrad, you can do so at bizarreconspiracies at gmail.com. As all one word, bizarreconspiracies at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. 
And as always, we will catch you in the next episode.